You're listening to the Yoga Teacher Resource Podcast. Knowledge, techniques, and inspiration for your teaching and your practice. I'm your host, Mado Hesselink. If you're a yoga teacher who loves learning, is passionate about spreading the benefits of yoga, and desires more resources to support your teaching, you're in the right place. Let's get started with today's episode. Is yoga incompatible with Christianity? My guest on today's podcast does not think so. Don Rivers identifies as a Christian and also as a yoga practitioner who strives to embrace the cultural roots of yoga. As a former librarian and the owner of the first fully BIPOC-owned yoga studio in Ohio, Dawn has a lifetime of experience in bridging different cultures. But she's also the first to admit that she didn't always know how to make her classes welcoming and supportive of other BIPOC students. I love how Dawn shares openly about her journey from a rigid expression of faith to one that embraces cultural differences and allows her to learn from the myths and stories in other faiths, including yoga. If you're curious about the intersection of yoga and Christianity, if you're invested in supporting BIPOC representation in yoga spaces, and if you want to learn how to create safer spaces for all in your yoga classes, you'll love this episode. Let's jump right in, and I'll see you on the other side. Welcome to the podcast, Dawn. Thank you. I'd love to start with a little bit of your story, how you found yoga, and why you decided to start teaching. How I found yoga. Well, I was a school librarian for 20 years, and going to the public library was how we spent our free time, had fun. And I walked past a video of Rodney Yee. I call him Rodney Yee, the OG, old gangster yogi sitting like in a field of grass or on a beach or something. I don't remember exactly. But a VHS tape. And I was like, hmm, I heard yoga was kind of good for stress. I was like, I'll try it. Because I was 29 or so, and I wasn't happy. My life was kind of stressful. I was married, had young children. So I put the tape in, went to the basement, listened to him and his calming, soothing easy voice. And I was like, oh, okay. I would do that like a lot. And then there was a early morning, like PBS yoga, something. I don't know. So I did that too. So in the mornings I would do yoga maybe once or twice a, a week before work in the evenings and weekends with the VHS tapes. And I just would get more and more and more. I did that for maybe two or three years. Then the school library where I worked at, there was like a corporate account at a gym. We had a gym membership. And I was like, okay, I'm going to do some yoga. They got yoga. They have all this other stuff. So I've been practicing yoga for like three years. I got this. But the difference between practicing with a video or somebody online is vastly <laughs> different than with people. And I was like, oh, I don't know what the hell I'm doing at all. So like the... The instructor gave cueing that I never heard. She came around and gave some assists. And then just being with other people and seeing other bodies, I was like, oh, I love this. But it was in a gym. So the air conditioning was on like 68 degrees. So it was cold. You have mirrors all around you. And I was really kind of critiquing my body. 
as I'm seeing myself move. So from there, I did that maybe three or four years and hot yoga started to be this big trend in Cleveland where I'm from. And I saw a postcard at a delicatessen saying, week of yoga, $15. So I coordinated with my spring break, went to this hot yoga class with the owner, took her class. It was like 90 minutes, 90 degrees. I came home and slept for two and a half hours. And I was like, this is my jam. And I stayed with them for like 10 years. I worked their desk and then I became uh, part of their yoga teacher training. While I was in teacher training, I said, I want like other people who look like me, Black women, going through some of the same conditions, struggles to practice yoga because I had headaches, back aches, hip aches, heartache, <laughs> all these aches, mind, body, and spirit that were healed by yoga. And I'm a Christian, so I said, Jesus and yoga saved my life. I believe that without yoga, I would not have found happiness again. So that's what happened. That was in 2013 when I became a certified yoga teacher. And then I quit being a librarian to be a full-time entrepreneur in 2019. And here I am today in 2020, still doing this thing. Like, ah! <laughs> I think Rodney Yee had an impact on a lot of people. I totally did his videos also before I became a teacher. And yeah, that was part of why was he was so calm and strong and yeah. Yeah, he was strong in a way that I took for granted because you. this was during a time where there were lots of powerful physical practices where you would see people very much sculpted in their bodies, you know, like in their muscles. But he wasn't like that, but he was strong. And I was like, how is that possible? You don't have a six pack, but you can do all these things. And then later in life, when I got chances to do workshops with him, I was just like fanning all over the place. I was like, oh my God, he assisted me. He helped me go up in the handstand and he adjusted. I mean, like, it was so powerful. And I told like him and Colleen were at some conference I was at. And I told them, I said, you're the reason why I'm here and why I opened up my studio. It all started with you. And he was very humble and it just was beautiful. So you mentioned earlier that part of the reason you became a teacher and part of why you opened your studio was really about representation. I'm imagining that means that when you were going to yoga classes that you didn't see a lot of other people that looked like you. Is that right? That is right. <laughs> so this would have been early 2000s and it's 90 degrees and Black women, our hair is a little different. You have curly hair, so you get that too. So humidity and hair, especially if you're trying to have straight hair, it doesn't work. <laughs> and so that would be one thing. The other thing is that, yeah, I mean, it was in a very affluent neighborhood, nothing against people who have affluence, but it wasn't accessible financially to some people. It wasn't accessible financially to me at the time. That's why I worked there. I got free yoga. Then thirdly, people just didn't feel comfortable because they didn't see other people who look like them. Body shape, 
skin color, even physicality. So like if a person is doing power vinyasa, it's very athletic. And if you're coming from a background where you need to just start moving your body again and you used to be in shape maybe, or if you want to lose some pounds, you might not feel like you belong because you don't look like her over there in the corner who's doing ansan and levitating back into chaturanga and all this kind of stuff. <laughs> You're like, oh no, I can't do that. So yeah, so, that's one of the reasons. So what are your classes like? So while I was in yoga teacher training, we had to write down a bunch of stuff. So I had goals and all these ideas. I wanted to create a spiritual kind of yoga practice because like I said, I felt that Jesus and yoga saved my life. And the more that I studied yoga, I saw so many connections to help me grow spiritually. So that was one thing. But I definitely taught the way I was taught. So I actually isolated many people. I would say, oh yeah, you could do this. And they're like, no, don't, I can't. Not until I went to a women of color yoga retreat and heard some of the words about people being marginalized, folks saying, uh, are you sure you can do yoga? Or we don't use props in this class, or that's my spot. All these different things. And I was like, I think that I am adding to trauma that women of color are experiencing. So I said to myself, I'm going to change that. Everybody can do yoga, body, shape, size, or whatever. So we have what I call the dawn experience, which is the spiritual side. We do mantra, mudra, meditation, and movement. And then we have restorative classes because when I was a power yoga person, I didn't know restorative yoga was a thing because there was no restorative class. There was yin or maybe slow flow, but not to actually flow. I said, oh, this is magic. <laughs> and now in 2022, we realize as a nation, because the world was shut down and people rested, that we are as exhausted as a, as a nation. So restorative is a big part of our, our classes. And so we have, we have power. We have restorative. We have yin. We have slow flow. And we have all levels. What message would you like to send to other yoga teachers of color who might be listening? Oh, to just keep doing you. Because I did not teach from my own voice. I taught the way that I heard. So continue to learn to practice and find who you really are and go back to the reason why you wanted to teach yoga. So I had to go back to the reason. Because at first I was like, I just want to teach a bomb ass powered yoga class. It's going to make you sweat. Be exhausted. So by the time you get to Shavasana, you pass out. That, that really wasn't the reason initially why I wanted to be a yoga teacher. So I forgot that for like five years. I'd forgotten. And then when I went back to the reason of I want to help people find a way to heal mind, body, and spirit, then my voice came back. And what about white yoga teachers who want to help who want to be part of the solution, what would you say to them? I would say be their authentic self too. I mean, just like we at the studio, we decided not to use namaste at the end of our practices. And this is because of Susan, right? And just looking at all of the different ways that we have spiritually bypassed our heritage from India. So if you're a white person, if you're a black person, if you're a person from a color, a mixed person, whatever you are, study. I mean, like behind me, I have a 
dozen books right there. I got more books. I have books at the studio. Google is free. Libraries in Ohio are free. There are ways to like find the information without bringing more harm to other people and asking them, well, how can I help you? You know, do some research. There are YouTube videos of people in interviews like this one, this podcast, and and then come back. Like, I remember I, when I was a school librarian, there, there was an issue with some coworkers. And my principal said, I don't want you coming to me with the problem. Come to me with some ideas to solve the problem. So to me, that's the best way. If you come to a person of color and you're white, you can say, hey, I, I want to support with this and this work, right? In your intake form, you talk about embracing cultural differences. What does that look like to you on a practical level? Well, to me, like I said, it's research, it's understanding. It's not necessarily me having to adapt, but understand it, see the beauty in it, love it, celebrate it, support it. So when people come in to our studio, white, black, Asian, Hispanic, straight on the spectrum of queer beautifulness, we don't care. It's like, just come in, be you, because I'm going to be me. And I don't want anybody telling me I can't be Dawn. (laughs) So I'm not going to do that to somebody else. So when I say we embrace that, that's from me. And when I train my students to become teachers and as I create the community for the teachers that I hire, that's what we do. Everybody is accepted because it's scary to walk into a studio full of people you don't know, right? They're already taking a brave step. So we want to embrace them. So maybe you have to teach the yamas and the yamas. Maybe you have to listen more. Maybe you have to do some encouraging. Maybe you have to create some programming that is connected with another community member if you're not you know, like first in that, that aspect of culture, hire somebody to work with you so you can balance it out. I mean, I, I tell people, I'm like, I don't know all the answers. I was a librarian. I can find answers. I don't need to store all of them in my head. <laughs> Just don't need to do that. How do you find that your work as a librarian has translated into your work as a yoga teacher beyond, I know you've already said, knowing how to find the answers. I think that's probably a big one. But are there other ways that the threads are connected? So this is interesting. I share this story when we do Dharma talks and talking about your purpose. I was in my 20s when I became a librarian. And one of the reasons why is because I felt like African-Americans, Black Americans don't necessarily have access to resources. And I knew that I was making decisions based on other people's information or hearsay or, you know, second, third hand information that way. And when I found the library, I was like, wait, what? You mean I could cook this? I can fix that? I can travel here? I can whatever from a book? Because this, y'all, this was prior to the internet being what it is today. The internet was very small and little and no pictures or videos on the internet. So as it grew, I was like, I want other people who look like me to know that a library is a necessary resource for you to have. So that was my purpose. I was a school librarian. I wanted to share with little Black boys and girls how to find information or answers to their questions. And then when I switched to being an entrepreneur full-time, I was like, oh my God, I have lost my purpose. 
And so my former boyfriend, boyfriend at the time, he was like, no, you still do that. And I was like, how? How am I doing that? And he said, you help people find answers to their questions through yoga. You share resources, information. You teach them how to breathe, how to relax, how to condition their bodies, you know, how to meditate, all these things. I was like, oh, okay. So, <laughs> right. I didn't know it was still there. So I tell people that the purpose is there. You can't really change. I feel like we have God-given purposes and that can't be changed. And you might go down a different path, but it'll still happen. In your intake form, you also mention tropes and stereotypes. How have you experienced that? And what are any specific tropes and stereotypes that you want people listening to be aware of? Yeah. Okay. So when I was working at this studio, which I love, and this is not in any way a disrespectful comment that I'm saying, because I still very much am connected to several people in that community. When I finished yoga teacher training, I auditioned. And like, you know, I worked the desk, checked people in, did this for five years. And when I auditioned, one of the teachers said, well, where's Sassy Dawn? I was like, well, this is how I teach. You know, they had already decided in their mind that if I became a teacher, this is the kind of class that I would have for them. Like, this is how they would market me. And I was like, well, no. So that was one. The other thing that has been said to me over and over is you're strong. So that strong Black woman trope, no, I don't have a choice in some cases not to do the things I'm doing. And I need support. I need coaching. I need resources. I need capital. I need friends. I need love. I need encouragement. I'm a full person. I'm not strong. That is not the word that I want to be, you know, described as. I tend to have a dominant personality. Most people who are entrepreneurs, you're creative. And then you have kind of like either a dominant personality, type A or whatever, because you have to, as a leader, um, when I was in this library leadership academy several years ago, like two decades ago, I didn't get in the first time. They were like, well, you have to show more leadership. So I like got on all these committees, did all these things. And then the second time around they had it, I was um, accepted. And one of the things that they said that sticks with me to this day is analogy of a fish, like the community, your corporation, your agency, your organization, whatever you work for as a, as a fish, 10% of the fish is ahead. They're going to go first. And then there's like 80% is the body and another 10% is the tail. They got to come along because they're part, they're just going to swim along with it. They're going to give a little kickback, right? As that, that tail flickers, but the head is only a small percentage of people they have to go first and they tend to be this dominant person or this this leader person who's able to bounce back a little bit faster i guess and so that's the way i would see myself but that trope of the strong black woman you're strong dawn no you could tell me i'm funny i'll take that one you could tell me that i'm creative or or something else but please remove that one 
Thank you for sharing that. Because I think it's really easy for people to think, well, it's a compliment, right? And not to recognize that what might feel like a compliment from coming from one person isn't landed as a compliment to somebody else. And I think it really speaks to the importance of learning to come full circle. Because if you don't take the time to listen to the stories and to really hear about their experience, then you're just going to make assumptions about what's a compliment. Yes. Thank you. Because to me, strong is is structural, it's invincible. Strong is almost impossible, right? Strong usually means that there's no way that you're going to break down. If you do, some catastrophe has happened to break you down. And I don't, I don't want to be assume that that's me because I'm like, I have hard times. I lie on the floor over here and I'm crying because things didn't work out the way I saw it. I put all this stuff out there. And like before you and I started doing this recording, we talked about the imposter syndrome. It's there. It's still there for me. I just tend to just keep moving and didn't stop to celebrate myself. And I guess you're right. People think it's a compliment, but it's not for me because that, that, that's more pressure on my shoulders to hold up even more stuff. Like, oh, man, I can't even be flawed. Does it feel a bit dehumanizing to you? It does. Mm-hmm. It does. Yeah. 2020, I started this whole journey of feminine energy because I felt like I was kind of walking in the stereotype of the strong Black woman. And as I was doing all this research, I studied Amazon, goddesses, queens, princesses, all these different like archetypes. And it was a beautiful study. And then I was listening to a podcast and she was talking about how fairy tales, you barely ever see a black woman in peril. So the character is usually a white woman in peril and a white man, prince, king, knight, will go long, hard, far, wide to save her from a tower that has no steps. He will scale the outside of this tower and get her, slay a dragon. But the Black woman, oh, she's going to be all right. She's going to raise all these children. She's going to walk 100 miles. She's going to do all these things on her own. And she doesn't need anybody. Right? It's like, well, why is that fair? Right? Why, why am I not worthy? as a Black woman, to have a knight in shining armor. Not saying, like, necessarily he does need to do that, but, like, why can't that be a part of this narrative of my femininity that he will put himself in danger for my honor? I don't have a business partner. I do this on my own because I want to, right? I want to have my own company for me. And I want my daughter to see, like, my mom is doing that as well as my son. And not to be like, yeah, I needed this person. But I want to be vulnerable enough to say, if I do need you, that you believe, like, oh, she does need me. Like, she's a full person. And it's okay for her to ask for help. She might be strong in my eyes, but she's a person. Not an invincible, indestructible. If that makes sense. Absolutely. Yeah. I think we all want to have 
the multiple sides of ourselves honored. There you go. And be allowed to be a complex, multi-dimensional person. Absolutely. Yes. Multi-dimensional, complex. Yes. Thank you. And that's what tropes and stereotypes prevent. That's what they avoid, is that it, it makes a person one-dimensional. That's some great stuff. I'm going to have to listen to this podcast. <laughs> like, oh, I learned something when I was being interviewed. <laughs> is there anything else that you really want to share that we haven't covered yet today? I just want to remind people that yoga is a philosophy. To me, it's a lifestyle. It is not just an asana practice. So we, as Westerners, have swung this pendulum all the way away from like its original place to like a physical, yoga can make you strong. You can get, you know, like really flexible, which I don't agree that we should push ourselves to flexibility. I think that later life, I'm almost 53. My body is not like it was when I first started doing yoga. And I pushed myself to places I probably shouldn't have gone to. So I think that if we study the yamas and the yamas and um, the Bhagavad Gita and the Padishads and some of these other things, you'll see like there are some principles that cross every culture that will help sustain us as people in this world to give back, to support one another, so we can actually thrive, right? We went, we've been in a state of survival as a globe these last two years, so we need to come out and thrive. And I think that yoga can help us do that. I call yoga your own growing awareness, Y-O-G-A. So the more that I practice yoga, the more that I read, the more that I'm in community with people on podcasts learning, even though I'm being interviewed, the more I grow, the more I become aware of like, oh, there's more possibility. So that would be it. And you identify as a Christian and you also identify as a yoga practitioner. Mm -hmm. I think there's a lot of misunderstanding about what yoga is in the wider world. And a big challenge that many yoga teachers come up against is people who identify as Christians feeling that yoga is incompatible with their faith. And so I think it'd be really cool to hear a bit about how the two connect for you and your own personal approach to this integration inside of you. Sure. It has been a journey and I've had to explain myself to many, many people about that. Because like I said, that yoga is a philosophy. It's a lifestyle. It's not a religion. People who are Hindi have practiced yoga. And there are some connections between Hindi mythology and yoga. We demonize Hindu mythology, but we don't demonize Greek, Roman, even Egyptian mythology. We are very interested in Native American traditions and South American, even some African traditions. But when it comes to Hindi and yoga and Christianity, it's like, oh, no, we can't do that. 
when we do this pose, it means that you're worshiping the devil. And I'm like, they never said that. The Hindu religion has a main God and then two other gods. It's very similar to Christianity, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Ghost. So when I'm, when I'm studying, it enhances my connection to the divine, as I say. It opens me up to hear what God has planned for my life. And I never say, this is what you need to do. This is what I believe. That's all that matters to me. I'm not out here to try to change anybody to make them become a Christian or whatever. I just said, this is how I I see it. So I see my yoga practice as spiritual, but it's not a religion. So in your experience, you think Christians have particularly targeted Hinduism and yoga as being unchristian or dangerous for Christianity. Yes. And for you, it sounds like you're able to recognize the wisdom from the stories and the wisdom from the archetypes in the stories and use them for your own growth and learning without feeling like they threaten the tradition that you come from. That's exactly it. When I was in my 500-hour training and we were doing kundalini practice for this whole weekend, it was one of the toughest things I ever did, like physically. (laughs) She said that her yoga practice brought her back to Judaism. She said, I saw God in kundalini, right? And, And when we see kundalini, we think of, you know, you're chanting this other language and we don't know what we're saying. But do you know what you're saying when you're saying something in Spanish or French? Not really, unless you study it. You have to believe that what people say is real before it actually, you know that it is. So if you're chanting something and you don't know because you didn't study it, you're just assuming like, well, it could be this. But if you study it, you'll find out the words mean what they say they mean. So when she said that, I was like, I get it. Because she felt more connected to a spiritual aspect of herself. And she wanted to go back and study Judaism more. She wanted to go back and study Hebrew again and learn what was in the Torah and and connect to going back to temple. And I was like, that's what I'm saying. So she was like, I don't see like there being an issue and to separate them in any way. But that's what I tell folks, you know, like I tell them that story and I tell them my story is that it enhanced what I needed. And I'm curious. That's, I think, why I became a librarian. I'm curious. I want to read more. I want to study more. I want to be connected to more people. I want to be enriched because I know, I know for sure when I was younger, I was very much dogmatic. I was self-righteous. I was close-minded. I was rigid in every kind of way spiritually because I used it as a way to feel safe because I had chaos and other aspects of my life. But I was like, if I have this and I do this, then everything will be good. It was regimented. And now I'm freer. (laughs) Yeah. And I think it speaks to a trust in your faith that it's not threatened by other faiths. Look at me learning again. I love that. Yes. That was perfect. It speaks to the trust. Yes, you're not threatened exactly. Yeah. And in a way that comes back to the vulnerability that we can't be vulnerable if we're threatened. We need safe space 
to experience vulnerability. Indeed. And it sounds like that's your mission with your studio is to create that kind of space. Yeah. I talk a lot about that safe space because it is scary out here. Because at the time, I was the only solo owner, African-American woman owner of a yoga studio in the state of Ohio, one of few in North America. And that's scary to learn to step out here. And I've had other people reach out and share and collaborate. And I support other people too who are taking this journey because it's, it's, it can be pretty expansive and, and you don't have the roadmap. You're going out and you're like, I'm just going to do this. And then you, you know, you stumble, you fall and you feel like you're going to fail. So if you, if you have a space where you can come to and whatever your growth is, it doesn't have to be entrepreneurship. It could be anything. Then you're, you're more likely to succeed. So through the things I've been through, and that's what I tell people, I'm like, you know, I'm just a few steps ahead of you, really. I'm still growing. I haven't like leaps and bound you, but when I learn, I am ready to share. And I want it to be in a space where you can feel like, I have a question and, you know, this is a dumb question, which I can't stand when people say that. It's not dumb. Maybe somebody else sitting here has the same question and they were too afraid, too vulnerable to ask. So when we have this safe space to share, to commune, to ask, to grow, we can thrive. What is your advice for other studio owners who want to create safer spaces at their studio? Conversation, which is a skill because I think that most of us don't listen. We hear, but we don't listen, right? We're waiting to give the answer, the solution, or our own version of the experience. Oh, I did this. So if you want to get to know people, maybe have a, you know, community connection time or tea or coffee, you know, like invite people in to share their experiences and don't take it as a personal slight against you. If somebody says this happened or this teacher did this or the music that you played or the language that you gave when you were queuing. And now sometimes I do feel like we're too sensitive as people and we use that as a crutch to keep ourselves from growing because growth is not comfortable. Growing pains is a real thing. My brother, when he was growing to be six foot, eight inches tall, it hurt his body. So if we're growing and somebody says something to us, we might be uncomfortable until we realize like they were right and I need to make adjustments. So having that, that mindset of like, this is not an attack. This is out of love. So it sounds like the most important thing is to invite truthful conversations and to really listen without having your own agenda in mind as you're listening. Yeah, that part. When Barack Obama was president and he would have like his town hall meetings and he would go around the country, I felt like he was listening with no agenda. He really wanted to hear what people were upset about and what people needed and their fears or even their accomplishments. And how can we support you 
Really? So why would I create something that nobody's going to come to? Or this elite, if I'm really saying that I'm for the people, but it's very elitist. And I'm not saying that you shouldn't have your ideal client. I'm not saying that you shouldn't have an avatar person that you're directing your yoga studios for. None of that kind of thing. But if you want to be more inclusive, then you have to put down your agenda, like you're saying, put down your specific outcome and let it flow. And maybe your space won't change much. And that's okay. Because, I mean, we have a lot of yoga studios out here. It is okay to, if yours is different than mine and mine is down the street or next zip code over 10 miles away or whatever, we don't have to have the same purpose. But I love that as a theme and an intention for all humans, really, to spend time listening to each other without an agenda. Yeah. Listen, listen. Be quiet for a second so you can hear. Because that's why I'm like sitting here and I'm learning stuff like, oh, man. That's why I love the podcast. I learn from everybody that I talk to. Every guest. Very cool. Well, thank you for coming, taking the time to talk to me and for being vulnerable and sharing your story. I really appreciate it. It's been fun. One of my goals and objectives many years ago was to connect with yogis. First, it was a bunch of yogis of color. And now I continue to expand. Like I want to, with 2020 happening, it made me want to see how other people are like communicating and podcasts became one of the ways for me to to learn to share to grow and to meet people so thank you for this opportunity because this is fun for me as well awesome and if listeners want to find out more about your studio and your work where should they go i made it pretty easy so <laughs> i have a website it's daybreak.yoga instead of .com.yoga. Our Instagram is daybreak.yoga. My website is Dawn and Rivers. My Instagram is Dawn and Rivers. <laughs> so if you Google either one of us, we will pop up. We have classes every day online in studio. I have lots of different things that I offer as well. What a gorgeous name you have, by the way. Oh, thank you. And a gorgeous smile too. Well, thank you very much. I'll take all the compliments. <laughs> See, throw them my way. I'll take them. You can't see on the podcast, but yeah, go check out her Instagram to see that beautiful smile. Thank you so much. Thank you, Don. I hope you have a beautiful rest of your day. I will. You too. What really landed for me during that conversation with Dawn was her excitement to learn from and honor cultures that are different from how she was raised. I feel an immediate affinity towards people who see the value of being exposed to different worldviews. I think of modern yoga culture as being a somewhat immature offshoot of this mature worldview of the, of the yoga tradition. And with that, there's a lot of room for growth. But this openness to other ways of thinking is a strength that I personally see more often among yoga practitioners than most other groups of people that I've been a part of. And that might be part of why I found my way here and have stayed for so long.
I recently learned about the term third culture kid, and it really landed for me deeply. So I want to talk about that a little bit. This is from Wikipedia. Third culture kids or third culture individuals are people who were raised in a culture other than their parents or the culture of their country of nationality and also live in a different environment during a significant part of their child development years. They're typically exposed to a greater volume and variety of cultural influences than those who grow up in one particular cultural setting. Third culture kids move between cultures before they've had the opportunity to develop fully their personal and cultural identity. The first culture of such individuals refers to the culture of the country from which their parents originated. The second culture refers to the culture in which the family currently resides or where they grow up. And the third culture refers to the distinct cultural ties among all third cultural individuals that share no connection to the first two cultures. When I heard this, it felt like such a profound description of like of my internal makeup that like it's making me emotional right now as I'm recording this, even though I've I've been thinking about this a lot. This naming of an experience that's so essential to how I move through the world. It makes me feel less alone to know that this is a common enough experience that it's been described and it has its own term. So I'm not sure how much of my history I've shared on the podcast. And obviously, I also can't assume that everyone listening has heard every episode. So I'll recap a bit of my background in very broad brushstrokes. Both my parents were born and raised in Europe, the Netherlands and France, but they actually met while they were traveling the world, and then they started traveling together. This was in the early to mid-1970s, so they were part hippie, part vagabond. They didn't have money, so they would travel to a new place, look for work, and then save up just enough to get to the next place. They originally went to Japan because they heard that it was a good place to earn money, but once they got there, they fell in love with the country. And they ended up living there for almost a decade. My sister and I were both born there. My mom went to acupuncture school there. My dad studied martial arts and history and taught Dutch. He may have also taught English. I'm not sure. Then when I was three, we left Japan. We lived in Europe for a few years. And then we moved to Hawaii where I grew up. We moved to Hawaii when I was almost five. I didn't even travel to the continental U.S. until I was 15. So I have this American accent, but I actually do not have the experience of growing up in American culture because while Hawaii is technically in the United States, the culture there is different. It's significantly different from growing up anywhere in the continental U.S. So my parents did split up when I was 10 and when I was 15, I spent some time with my dad in Tokyo, and then my mom, my sister, and I moved here to Asheville, North Carolina. So these experiences of moving between these different cultures, Europe, Japan, Hawaii, and then finally the continental U.S., they had a huge, huge impact on my development as a person. The way I describe it is that being a third culture kid means that you don't feel fully at home anywhere, but it also makes you feel connected to everywhere. 
I definitely feel an affinity towards people who are connected to Japan, Hawaii, the Netherlands, France, but I can't relate to a sense of national identity or nationalism or patriotism or any of those isms that connect you to one specific place. And especially when those isms imply some kind of superiority of one place over another, that just like it just makes my skin crawl because my experience is that there are pros and cons, benefits and drawbacks to every single place. Obviously, I haven't lived everywhere or been everywhere, but I've never lived one place that was superior to another place. It's more like, is it a good fit for you? What are your priorities? What's more important to you? Here's some more from Wikipedia. Third culture individuals are particularly adept at building relationships with other cultures, but do not possess a cultural identity of their own. They can be referred to as cultural hybrids, cultural chameleons, and global nomads. Just like there are pros and cons to living different places, having this third culture identity sometimes feels like a superpower and sometimes feels like a handicap. So here's from Wikipedia some of the studied benefits and drawbacks to this experience. Benefits include expanded worldview, interpersonal sensitivity, cross-cultural competence or cultural intelligence, and higher levels of general adjustment. Challenges include confused loyalties, difficulty adjusting to cultures where the only culture that's discussed or focused on is itself, difficulties with adjusting to adult life, and this one's really interesting. Female third culture individuals hesitate to develop relationships and have less emotional affect as opposed to non-third culture individuals. Furthermore, female third culture kids' identity development is delayed because of their focus on adjusting rather than creating a sense of belonging. One thing that's really interesting about this third culture identity for me, and part of why I'm talking about it today, is that it is invisible for most people. Now, it's not the case for everyone. I have three half-siblings who are half-Japanese. And for my siblings, their third cultureness is kind of implied in their appearance. But my white skin and my American accent, they allow or cause me to blend in. And they also feel sometimes like an uncomfortable costume. I'm often aware when I meet people that they're making assumptions about me that are just really far from my actual lived experience. Sometimes this shows up as a privilege, right? It allows me to fly under the radar when I want to, but it also makes me feel like an imposter and it makes me feel like people don't really see me. The one thing that does hint at my background is my name and people who are particularly astute or sensitive or maybe who have also more of a third culture perspective. Some people do zero in on that and ask questions about it. And I imagine other people probably assume that it's a chosen name because not everybody asks me about it. So if you enjoy the worldview that I share on this podcast, if you like the way that I examine the same topic from multiple angles, 
And if you like the variety of guests that I bring on, chances are most of that is influenced by my experiences as a third culture person. I am profoundly grateful for all the encouragement that podcast listeners have sent my way since I first started recording and releasing episodes over four years ago. This podcast has always been a collaboration with my guests and listeners and myself. I listen to your feedback, your questions, and your requests, and this is what fuels me to keep creating. So I will close this episode as I usually do with a reminder to keep practicing and gratitude to all of you who care so much about humanity that you dedicate your lives to teaching yoga. Thank you.